Good evening, listeners. It's Sunday, August 5th, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Padgett-Cobb. And I'm Heather Forsyth. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of the these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blogs, our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests and their hosts and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight we are joined by Samantha Ross from the Kinesiology Adapted Physical Activity Program within the College of Public Health and Human Sciences at Oregon State University. Hey Samantha. Hi. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about what it is you do. Yeah. Um, my overarching goal, career goal, and part of my research is to facilitate equitable access to early childhood experiences like play, exploration, social interactions for children with and without disabilities. So if you think about that two-year-old who's just starting to run around and kind of explore their environment and really think about how much they're learning in that opportunity and how much learning to walk and crawl and run facilitates that, and then think of a child with a disability who isn't gaining those motor skills, um, you can see a big difference and, a bit, and that's kind of where the gap may start for children with and without disabilities in achieving these motor milestones um, and also these other core components of development. So my research has two aspects to it that are really targeted at helping these children with disabilities have opportunities to explore and play and engage with their peers. So part one of my research is focused on the children with mobility disabilities and looking at what is that motor experience like and how do we provide supports and opportunities that allow these children to move and have exploration and play and social encounters. So in partnership with Go Baby Go here at Oregon, we modify ride-on cars, um, which are, <clears throat> excuse me, off the shelf, battery operated vehicles. Um, you can think of like your Barbie Jeep. Mm -hmm. And we modify the activation switch so that it's easier and more sensitive to press. And then we also use PVC pipes and pool noodles to give seat support um, for children as young as six months to get them moving and get them engaged in play. And part of the research we're doing is every year we host an inclusive play group for children one to five with and without disabilities. And we're observing how movement is related to play and exploration with toys and that, some of those social components. So 
You mentioned a, a gap mm-hmm. that occurs in development. And so is this something that's observed later in childhood? And well, I guess define this gap for us. Is this in terms of motor, cognitive, social skills? Sort of what does this encompass? Yeah, it's a usually it's a global gap. Um, acknowledging that every child is different, every experience with disability is unique. But what we see is that when children are not moving, they're also not working on these other skills of social and cognitive um, and other motor-related skills. So we see a gap across the board. Right. So when you talk about the motor experience, you're talking about not just the act of learning to walk and doing the walking, but actually what the walking enables them to then do. Absolutely. Yeah, we want to know it isn't about just getting from A to B, and it that doesn't have to be achieved by walking, right? Maybe that's achieved by driving the car. Right. And what happens during that time that helps these children learn and engage with those other skills. So I'm curious, this self-perceived experience of movement that occurs in very young children where it may be difficult to communicate with them, how do you assess a self-perceived experience? Is there a way of doing that or is it not quite clear-cut? It's not clear-cut in that younger age group. Um, In school-age kids, they've done a lot of work, not in, in our research lab, but in other places. Um, actually interviewing children with disabilities and asking what does it mean to you to participate in play and sport and physical activity to try to learn what that might mean. For this younger age group in the inclusive play group, it's a lot of observations about quality of play, what are they doing, facial expressions, kind of positive um, observations. Okay. And so that's where you maybe gather these measurements or these observations is in the inclusive play group. Yes. And there is it just the observation component? I think you mentioned the tracking distance. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So our goal is to match up movement patterns with these social play behaviors. And does one lead to the other? Do they coincide? So with the video observations, we're tracking their peer engagements, their how many times are they engaging with toys. And then we also have a GoPro that kind of hangs over the play space and gives us a bird's eye view. And then we're able to actually track every five seconds where they are on the mat. And that gives us the ability to measure their displacement or how far they've moved in feet during that playtime, and then also their dispersion, like how much of the play space are they accessing or are they kind of staying um, relatively isolated in one area of the play space. Okay, and so you've been doing this for a few years now, right, because you're towards getting towards the end of your PhD program. So have you come to any sort of conclusions about what you've observed? Can you tell us about what you found? Yeah. So there are a lot of nuances, um, and I think this is still in the very beginning stages. I know it's been several years, but we're still trying to get a hold on a lot of the questions that you've brought up. How do you measure that? How do you capture that? 
Um, the mobility experience is very complex. Um, and so we are learning that children are successful at driving the cars and using them during play. We are seeing that they facilitate play with peers without disabilities, and we're seeing a lot of positive peer relationships that come from that. Um, and then we're starting to build from that and look at provider attitudes um, and some of these other pieces that might help ensure that this is a feasible intervention strategy. Okay. Another thing that came to mind is I was wondering, you had mentioned that the ride on cars sort of reduce barriers between disabled and non-disabled children. Is there um, an enhancement of the quality of relationships between disabled children from this activity, or is that something that hasn't been looked at? Yeah, yeah, and I'm going to take a minute real quick to just say that there's a lot of ongoing conversation about disability and terminology, Um, and so disabled versus children with disabilities, um, we are open to using both of them, Um, but typically the children with disabilities is our adopted terminology, Um, but that is a very broad discussion across the board. Um, But yeah, barriers come come up when these children are wanting to say there's a fun toy across the mat and now they want to go join that play space or run with their peers through the on the play mat. Um, We've also seen it reduce barriers with families. There's another ongoing project where the ride on cars go home with the kids and we hear about families going on walks in the evenings and the children being able to drive the cars um, with them at home. Okay. Yeah. So it's facilitating relationships and community-based enhancement in a number of different aspects. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned that these cars are similar to like the Barbie Jeep. Yeah. So that makes them maybe more economical than other options or maybe more easily accessed. Can you talk about uh, how the car is different from other means of mobility for these children? Yeah, that's a fantastic point. Um, Powered mobility devices are very expensive and they are not accessible through insurance and through providers, usually till age five or seven, um, just because it is a lengthy process. Children outgrow them quickly, so there's a lot of ongoing discussion about whether or not to provide them early. They're also very heavy, so it's hard to move them from one place to another place. So yeah, these are off-the-shelf cars. Um, They're about $200 by the time you've modified them. They are a fun toy, so they are exciting for both the child and peers, which Mm kind of helps reduce those barriers too. And they're easy to transport um, and a little bit easier to navigate in those community and home spaces. Okay, cool. So prior to your PhD program, can you tell us about how you ended up going into this field, what you were doing beforehand? Yeah, I did my undergraduate at um, the University of Oregon. And there I was volunteering at an adapted horseback riding center. 
um, which I then, after graduating my undergraduate, ended up working there as an instructor for a couple of years. And what I learned there was we were having clients with disabilities come and ride horses and seeing someone control this thousand pound animal um, and be in charge of where and when and why you're moving is you could just see it light up the person Um, and there's more learning that happens there's more social engagement that happens with other riders or with the instructor and so I was really intrigued by how self-agency and movement like being in control of where you're moving was driving that learning experience and then the hardest part about being an instructor there was then seeing people who had this really positive experience on the horse leave the barn being pushed in a wheelchair Mm -hmm. and so this movement and independence and and strength that came in the environment of being on a horse wasn't translating to other aspects of life. So I really wanted to be an advocate for that and going back to school to learn more about it, learn more about how movement is critical to that experience and then how how do we support access. Yeah. So I was wondering about the trajectory, the history of this sort of research and so it seems like you're you are involved in a portion of it that's focused on building, um, enhancing uh, children's experience and their well-being. Um, but it hasn't always been like that. There's been a push from advocacy groups to maybe take a different perspective on things. Can you tell us about the, sort yeah. of the history? Yeah, and it comes back to this conversation with terminology, too, okay. that there is Traditionally, um, disability has been viewed from a medical perspective, that it is within the person that we need to kind of fix. Um, And that's where there's strong rehabilitation models um, that for children to really have access to these experiences, we need to find a way that they are learning to walk um, and kind of meet that expectation in society. The newer or emergent perspective is that disability is actually a result of barriers that are in our society and in our community, Um, whether it be physical barriers or the attitudes of people. Um, And so how do we change the environment so that these kids have access to these opportunities? And that's through promoting inclusive playgroups or talking to doctors and talking to parents to say, let's give them this toy um, and we can get them moving and exploring and playing, even if we're also still working on walking. So trying to just change the conversation and looking at where, really what's causing the disability um, and shifting that more towards environmental components. Okay, yes, I think you had mentioned a term flipping the lens mm-hmm. on this conversation where instead of trying to um, kind of adapt the child to the situation, it's more about adapting the environment to the needs of the child yeah. for a given situation, which I think is really powerful, but that's fairly recent. It's It hasn't been that way for yeah. forever, obviously. Right, right. Okay. 
Interesting. So you have a couple of components of your research that you're working on, and we've just been talking about um, the observational component and uh, the modified ride-on car, which if you're curious to see a picture of this, there's a picture up on our blog, um, and it's modified with the PVC pipes, Mm -hmm. and it provides structural support for children. Mm So what is the other component of your research that you've been working on? Yeah, I think you just highlighted it really well and made a smooth transition talking about the environment um, because that really is the other, you know, part two of the research I'm engaged in is looking at our um, systems of care, whether it be in the medical setting, how are you accessing professionals for early intervention or for your primary care provider, and how does do those service systems help support your access to devices? Or kind of in a broader sense, how are they supporting your participation in community activities? Okay. How do you go about assessing whether children's needs are being met, maybe in a broad sense? Yeah, right now I'm working with the National Survey of Children's Health, and this is um, sponsored by the Maternal and Child Health Bureau, and they work to interview families across the nation. Um, It's through a web-based survey, so families have time to kind of work through each of the questions. And they get asked questions about, are you, do you need help getting referrals or accessing services, and are you getting the help that you need? Are there needs that are currently unmet, like an assistive device? They're also asked about their child's health um, and how their child is doing in school and functioning day to day. And so we're able to, it's a publicly available data set. So um, rather than looking at the individuals, which was kind of the first part of my research, now we're looking at a population level and taking this national data set and looking for patterns of our families who are getting their needs met more likely to have a child who is actively participating um, with the idea that if you reduce unmet needs and you increase those support services, that the child is going to be more successful. So working with these big data sets, do you have a question and then look for your answer or do you go from the big data set and then formulate your questions from that? Both directions. Um, You start with a question and look for a data set that fits that question. Um, But then also because this data set, it's actually just come out um, 2016 and 2017 and so you can see there's kind of ongoing conversation about how do we measure children's health? What does that mean and what does that look like in the United States? And from that, that sparked a question in for me of, well, what does that look like for children with disabilities? And making sure that they're part of that national conversation. So you had mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that the ride-on cars are about $200. Mm-hmm. and that's still pretty expensive for some families, and I'm wondering if there are are there ways to identify children who might be um, come from maybe more 
economically disadvantaged circumstances that may not be receiving care? Um, are there ways to identify them, prevent them from slipping through the cracks, perhaps? Yeah, and I think that's really the next step in our research. Um, right now, they there are avenues for accessing it through Go Baby Go um, as a nonprofit, and those are donated and are available to families in Oregon who sign up. Um, but certainly using this national data set and interviewing practitioners and parents, we're starting to learn about how do you access them so that we can start to identify barriers or possible places that people might get lost or have trouble navigating the system. Okay. So it's the research is still at the stage where you're trying to identify maybe what factors could make a child um, a suitable candidate to receive one of these ride-on cars, perhaps? Yeah, it's okay. there's a big advocacy that children one to you know five in these early years, one to three, are getting powered mobility devices early. That's the recommended course of action. But we don't really have any systems that are monitoring that. No one's collecting that data or asking that type of question. So it's really hard to be able to evaluate our children getting devices at the ages they need it. Right. Um, and if not, who is most likely not to be getting it? Okay. And of course, that takes years, I guess, to follow because these are children as they're growing up. And so you sort of don't necessarily have the answer to the question. Yeah. Or quite a long time, actually. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned you, where you had begun with this interest. And what uh, was there something about OSU that made you want to come here in particular? Yeah, actually, one of my students at the Adapted Horseback Riding Center was also a student at Impact, which is a swim and gym service program that OSU hosts um, on Friday nights. And so they um, were really excited about that program and sharing that with me and saying that the goals of that program are very similar to what they were doing with us and the horses. And so I came up here and learned about the Adapted Physical Activity Program um, and was really excited that OSU was doing research but also community outreach and having that be part of both of it. Um, and then on top of that, OSU, well, the Adapted Kinesiology Program is actually part of the College of Public Health, which is unique. Um, a lot of times you see it in education programs or in more medically based programs. So having that community outreach piece plus a focus in public health kind of just really fit with that idea of advocating um, for people within the community. So one thing I'm wondering is, looking forward, do you have a view on what it is you might want to do after you finish graduate school? But also, I, before I forget, I want to make sure to ask or point out that you are very accomplished here at OSU. You have, you have several master's degrees, so can you <laughs> tell us about both of those? Yeah, um, so I have a master's in exercise and sports science um, from OSU, which they now change the name. It's still the kinesiology program. 
um, in adaptive physical activity. And then during my PhD, I was a concurrent student in the Masters of Public Health Epidemiology program, which, um, as I shared, is a really it's a big strength of this program that you have both a perspective of the individual, but then also we get to take this broader look at the population and its service um, services and communities um, so that the master's in public health will really balance with my PhD in kinesiology to have both of those um, angles to help support children with disabilities. It sounds like you have a holistic view. Yeah, yeah, it really has been really exciting and it's really given access to a lot of collaborators and different types of programs and people that really challenge you to think outside the box. There are a lot of things that influence um, children with disabilities in those early years um, and being able to find a way to measure and influence all of those different factors are going to have a higher likelihood of actually impacting the children. Absolutely. So with that whole well-rounded, up-close and broader scale data perspective that you have, what do you want to do next? Yeah, I want to continue with this conversation. And where I see myself doing that is at a university center of excellence on developmental disabilities. And there are several centers across um, the nation. Oregon Health and Science University in Portland has one. And they are university centers that work with with federal agencies to kind of filter money through and provide services and programs to children and their families. And within these centers, they are connected with community programs, with disability communities, but then are also hubbed in universities so they have the academic and the scholarly um, perspective as well. So getting all of those people at the table, um, I think is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives a lot of potential to really embrace this holistic perspective and and hear from different people so that we are approaching the research question in um, the best way. So that sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> there's... It sounds like there's an interface there or a connection then with lawmakers, the research component, and then also these centers being most of the time at medical centers or um, places where or schools where healthcare providers are being trained. That's sort of they're the next, uh, they're going to be the ones who go out and sort of put this into effect yeah like yeah so there has to be that crosstalk that occurs between all the different groups yeah and it's a big push right now to get disability discussion into medical students learning experience um, and training but if we can step in even earlier and provide it to undergraduate students who are going into all sorts of allied health professions um occupational therapy, physical therapy, you know, um, physician's assistants, or anyone who's working in the community, just to have exposure to disability 
um, to know what that conversation is, to hear from people with disabilities about their lived experience can be really impactful to having informed healthcare providers um, and community members that we can all work together to make a more inclusive. Absolutely. Well, we're getting to the end of our show, and so we like to close out with a couple of traditions, one of them being a piece of advice um, that you feel is important for yourself at an earlier time or someone pursuing a similar path. Can you tell us? Yeah, I'm actually going to pass off some advice that I just got, um, which is that take take some time to write your own personal mission statement or your personal goal. You know, what is it that you want to achieve or where do you want to make an impact in the world? And then be really critical when opportunities come up or when you're working on your research or your you're building skills towards your career about whether or not this new opportunity aligns with that goal. It's very easy in academics to get sidetracked. Um, There are a lot of opportunities, there are a lot of niches. I don't know how many rabbit holes I've gone down when you you find a new interesting topic and then you're off in some field that's distant to what you've been doing. So those, those experiences are really great, but if you have something that's guiding you and keeping you focused, um, you, you can always change that mission statement as you evolve, but it certainly helped me say no to some opportunities um, so that I can dedicate more time to the pieces that I think are really going to help me make an impact. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Yeah. And so the last tradition we have on the show is... Uh, that we play a couple of songs of your choosing. And what did you choose and why? Okay, um, I chose some folk music that I really like. Um, It kind of just popped up on my Spotify and on my Amazon Prime account. They are really happy songs. Um, They're great study songs. (laughs) Always good. Yeah, and a lot of them are just kind of upbeat, kind of singing about staying young and those moments when you haven't got it quite figured out, but you're still just going along with it anyways. Yeah. Awesome. So this is going to be Humbug Mountain Song by The Fruit Bats. Mm-hmm. And then also Howling It Nothing by Nathaniel, is it Ratliff? Mm-hmm. Okay. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me.